The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Father, with the eternal Son and Holy Spirit, ever one, we pray thee, bring us by thy grace to see thy glory face to face. Amen. Amen. Someone with the knowledge to do so, could you maybe turn down that volume? Wireless 3 back there, if your name's Steve Lindemeyer. I feel like I'm a... See, best guy, a little bit, yeah, that's, I think that's better. Thank you. It's kind of echoey to me. All right, Transfiguration Sunday. Let's see here, what do I want to talk about first? Uh, a couple announcements again. Uh, Ash Wednesday is uh, this coming Wednesday with there's 11.15 a.m. service. That, we actually have a service at 11.15 every Wednesday. Um, it's shorter, a short sermon, uh, usually one hymn, and um, we're, we're done in 30 minutes for, with time for fellowship afterward. Beth, can you turn it back up? Somewhere in between where I was and where I am. Um, so, uh, but it, normally it's, it's, it's over pretty quick. It's perfect. Thank you. Uh, this week is a full divine service with ashes at 1115. Uh, then at six o'clock in the evening on Wednesday is a soup supper. And if you can, you can sign up for various ways to help with the soup supper at the, um, at the welcome center, things you can bring food wise. And then the service at seven with ashes and communion. So uh, it, 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 it's great. You read, that, you read the lesson from Matthew where it says, when you fast, don't do like the Pharisees and disfigure your faces. And then we disfigure our faces. It's a weird thing. Ash Wednesday is kind of a new invention. We'll talk about that another time. I never get a Bible study to talk about Ash Wednesday. Think about it. It's always on Wednesday. Uh, let's see, anything else? The worship, the, the Holy Week, Lent, and Easter worship schedules are all in the week at a glance. Pretty much normal stuff to expect. Um, lots of different ways you can help with the soup supper. Theology on Tap, this Thursday at 7 in the youth room, talking about the fourth commandment in the large catechism. So join us for that if you'd like. And also Financial Peace University will be hosting that here with the Teskies are doing that beginning March 6th at 7. So again, a week at a glance. Um, if you look around the room and there's a lot of people whose faces you don't recognize, it's because we don't have an updated photo directory, which we should have. Um, if you've ever been a part of a photo directory before, or like when the, you, you, you call a company to come in, there's Donna. Donna here's, Donna and I had the joy of dealing with LifeTouch. These companies that they come in and they tell you, we don't harass your people, we just take your picture and give you a free directory. And then they harass everyone trying to get you to buy their pictures and all this super annoying. Yeah, it's a great picture, but is it worth, is it worth the effort? So we, you know what, everyone's got pretty cool iPhones and if uh, you can take pictures pretty easily, or maybe there's a picture of your family already. I mean, how many pictures at any one moment are on your phone? A thousand, 10,000 of your family? So all we have to do is basically take one of those pictures that you like of your family and we'll put that in our photo directory and make sure it's updated and get that out to people so you can actually you know, be more acquainted with the faces and names of, of, our, of our congregation. So, uh, but I need somebody to help spearhead that effort, just putting, putting, organizing all that and getting everyone's, getting everyone's names and stuff. If you wanna be a part of that, uh, talk to me or Beth after the service or after the study today, or at any time, call or whenever. Uh, let's see. Transfiguration, a couple quick notes about the transfiguration today. I focused on the epistle lesson more so than the, um, than the gospel lesson. It's a remarkable thing when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain of transfiguration. And so the mountain was called the mountain of transfiguration. That's why he picked that mountain to go up. I'm kidding. No, 
So Joe, I said, bad, like two bad jokes in a row today. Terrible. Um, so Jesus is up this mountain. He's transfigured. So his face shines. Uh, the different gospel accounts talk about his face shines like the sun. His clothes were, were brighter than any bleach could, could get them white. Um, then you hear this booming voice from heaven. But before the voice from heaven, you've got Je- Jesus shining brightly. And um, it's just really bizarre. It's like, um, I don't know. Hard to try, to try to picture in your head what this must have been like. But then Moses and Elijah are standing there and they're not wearing name tags, right? So obviously Jesus probably told them later, although he knew because he said, I'll make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So they must have been wearing name tags. I don't, maybe Moses is holding the Ten Commandments and Elijah parked the fiery chariot next door. I mean, something to identify them by. Um, and they're talking, as Luke says, about his exodus, his departure. That is um, just a, a nice way to talk about his crucifixion, where he'll be, uh, which is coming up. I mean, he's, as he comes off the Mount of Transfiguration, he heads toward the cross. Um, and so it's a wonderful contrast theologically. We, we, we can easily miss it because the hymnody is great and there's a lot going on. But Jesus is manifest which is the, the word that epiphany means, manifest, reveal. Jesus is manifest in all of his glory. And he's, this is God and the, the booming voice of God the Father. And this is great. And then instead of, instead of this being the way God wants to be known, he says, no. And he comes down the mountain in weakness and he heads to the cross. So we get this extreme power, Jesus, heading down to the weakness, the most lowly weak Jesus. And it, the timing is helpful. I mean, just before this event is, the, is Jesus's famous conversation with Peter and the apostles where he says, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say prophet. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends him. Good job, Peter. Have, the father in heaven has revealed this to you, right? And then Jesus goes on to talk about how the Son of Man must suffer and die. And Peter pulls him aside and says, are you, th- are you sure that's a good idea? I mean, if you're gonna be, a, if you're gonna be the, the, the Messiah, then you probably don't wanna go talking about dying and suffering and stuff. It's not really encouraging the troops, you know? And so he says what to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. So that what are the things of God? That Jesus wants to die for sinners. And Peter's trying to, I mean, obviously Peter doesn't get, get it yet at that point. And so, so here's Peter who wants Jesus, not a suffering Jesus, but a power Jesus. And now Jesus is on top of a mountain. And what kind of Jesus is Peter seeing? Power Jesus. So he says, it's good, Lord, that we're here. Let's stick around. And Jesus is like, no, right? So then you get the, you get the cloud kind of fills the, uh, fills the top of the mountain, which is consistent with the presence of God in the Old Testament, in Exodus. Uh, so the presence of God fills the, fills the space. You hear the voice from, in fact, he's kind of repeating Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, a.k.a. Peter, you're not listening. <laughs> like, yeah. He's got to go to the cross. Listen to this. So then he looks up, and, and the, the Greek is great. It's manos Jesus, uh, mano only. He looks up. So in one minute, he looks up, and it's shiny Jesus. 
Moses and Elijah, missed, booming voice, remarkable moment, falls down in fear at the presence of God, and then he looks up after hearing the voice and everything clears out. And it's just Jesus, like just hanging out. I, mean, I always picture it like kind of awkwardly. Think how anticlimactic that goes from like this triumphant blasting. And then like, just then, then he looks up again, it's just Jesus, like his ketchup stain on his shirt from earlier, sandals, just kind of, he walks up, fear not. That's, so Jesus is coming. This is how God hides his power. He hides his glory. And he comes to us in weakness and lowliness, comes to the cross, which is unlike anything we'd expect from, the, from any other Messiah, power, savior figure. We save by power. The, the nine in shine, shining armor does not ride into the castle and immediately get killed. That's a short movie, right? He comes in and kills everybody else, saves the princess, out he goes, right? Jesus rides in, crucified. So it's not, the, it's not the, usually the picture of saving, and yet that's how Jesus wants to be known. So with that contrast and transfiguration, it's perfectly timed because now we enter a season of Lent. As we then further consider the cross, our need for the cross, and what Jesus is doing on the cross by hiding his glory uh, and coming in weakness. So any, any quick questions or comments on transfiguration before we get it to the topic at hand, Luke 16, unless you want to pull the fire alarm, anybody? Fire alarm? <laughs> Should note... Total accident. In fact, uh, the fire department came out and was like, that shouldn't have gone off. So it got, it got bumped. Like if you look at the fire alarm, it has to be like shattered. And it wasn't shattered. It like just went off. So, um, but if, if there are, I, I, I normally, just so you're confident in my abilities to lead in the case of emergency, I would have said, okay, everyone file out. Here we go. But then uh, before I could even get those words out of my mouth, she ran up and said, I bumped it, it's okay, it's not real. So I just picture like Sue Shranowski, where are you, Sue, with her walker trying to get out the door. I'm like, why are we, I'm not gonna force her to do that, so. Uh, but if there, is a, if there is a fire alarm for any other reason, we're normally, you know, in good order, file out of here, leave your handouts behind, get a donut and coffee, out you go. <laughs> Luke 16 and 17, hopefully we can get uh, into, into uh, 17. Uh, we'll see. So we're in the middle of talking about divorce and remarriage. Uh, just a couple quick final comments on that. Remember the context here is that Jesus is, is really railing against the legalism of the Pharisees who think that there's a way that they can keep themselves clean and righteous before God under the law. And one of the things that they're famous for doing is writing the certificates of divorce that somehow, somehow allows a person to have this righteous divorce, like they can keep their hands clean. The problem is when there's a marriage, what marriage is, is the one flesh union, which brings forth children. I mean, that's why the sexual act is so, is, is so significant. And that it is, unfortunately, it's kind of the sexual revolution is, has a kind of changed the way everyone thinks about this. But in a real way, it bonds you to a person that is not easily forgotten, if ever forgotten. And there, that's why there's always like long-term, long-term uh, impacts of the sexual union for people like uh, the popularized Sex in the City, which in every TV show there is, or in every music, all the music that you can listen to today, it trivializes sex, and so like it's this just simply an action that doesn't have any consequences or any kind of like emotional or, or um, spiritual connection. But according to the Lord, it is the one flesh union. It wasn't like a, 
in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't like Adam, Adam and Eve are standing before God and there's vows, a tuxedo and a dress and a veil and the wedding rite and the whole ceremony and a $50,000 bill and all this kind of stuff. There wasn't, there wasn't all that rigmarole. It was just that the Eve was presented to Adam and they became one flesh. They were married. And so we kind of rethink about what marriage is and what marriage is not and how sex really like makes clear what a marriage is. And the children that come from that um, are evidence of the one flesh union. Now, the reason I, I, I mention all that is when someone's been married and you have that one flesh union that occurs, there's no way to pretend that it didn't happen, especially when there's kids involved. Like the, the Roman Catholic idea of annulment, when it comes to, because I want to get remarried, so I need to somehow pretend that my first marriage didn't occur, which you got like 12 kids. Catholic joke. But, but, but so all these kids, are they just like in illegitimate now? No, you can't, you can't just erase the thing. And that's so the point of Jesus here. He's not giving us instruction or this like a checklist of uh, what, what, what we can and cannot do. But notice what he says. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So this, he, what he's after is convicting the Pharisees of their adultery because the Pharisees themselves are trying to, trying to climb their way into Christ's righteousness, into God's righteousness according to keeping the law. And that's why we get this really obscure comment about marriage dropped in the middle of like teaching about the law and leading into the rich man and Lazarus. I mean, it doesn't seem to make sense in any other way except for this is like an example of Jesus when he's, he's railed about them, about the law. And then he says, here's an example of how you guys are, are totally missing the point of the law. You're not gonna keep your hands clean. Now, but then we kind of shift to, yes. Well, so again, you're, you're doing exactly the thing that, that the Pharisees were doing. So what we, we try to, we're trying to figure out a formula in which, trying to figure this thing out. Like how, why, so the man has a, he's somehow innocent or the woman isn't gonna be innocent or we're gonna apply blame and so on and so forth. That's not what's, ha what's happening here is Jesus is convicting the Pharisees for trying to be able to get off, get off scot-free. Now here's what we, the helpful teaching on, in contrast to this, or really to, to pour the holiness and clarity of Jesus over this, is in Ephesians 5, where it talks about the husband loving his wife as Christ loves the church, keeping her spotless without blemish. So this, so the picture is actually, and, when, and, and even the Old Testament picture of God coming to Israel. Do you remember, is it, uh, is it Hosea or Am Who's the guy who marries a, a whore? Hosea? So, so the picture is this ongoing chasing of Jesus to this adulterous bride who keeps breaking the marriage and he comes and brings his, his, holy, his holyingness to her. So that has us thinking about marriage under the way of the gospel, which, is, which has us being able to say, well, yeah, there's adultery. In fact, there's adultery even if you're not married. There's no getting off the hook because as, as Jesus said last Sunday's gospel, we, we commit adultery with the eye, not just the body, right? So no one's clean in this. So if, you, if you've married yourself to someone by sins of the eye or the laptop, then there's no getting married. 
to another, except through the cleansing of Jesus. And that has us thinking about marriage now as this husband being made one flesh to the wife in this picture of Christ and his his bride, the church. But if you're looking at it under the law, as far as what is sinful, what's not sinful, you're going to find sin everywhere because that's what Jesus is doing here. That's what he's trying to accomplish. I would argue it. I mean, I'm convinced that that at least, and I haven't seen anybody deal with it in a way that I find helpful. I mean, too often people are like, and here Jesus talks about marriage. I'm like, why? Why is he randomly talking about marriage and giving, and of all people, Jesus, he comes giving all these laws about committing adultery. Like he goes from talking, he's condemning the Pharisees, trying to teach, bring them to repentance for their self-righteousness. And then he turns and says, by the way, if you want to keep yourself clean, you can't get a divorce or marry somebody who's been divorced. But you just told me that I can't make myself righteous. See the confusion there? Now, that being said, obviously, the church is clear teaching. So it's all, all, like all preaching of the law and gospel, it has to do with the context. If someone walks up to me and says, Pastor, um, is divorce sinful? I say, okay, I mean, yes. So then if I divorce my wife, if I, if I abandon my wife or my husband or whatever, will you, will you forgive me? So it's like premeditated thing. And so now I can ride into my divorce with this clear conscience that pastor's going to forgive me anyway. So that's kind of this, it smacks of unrepentance and it minimizes the damage of sin. Because regardless of whether or not I, think about why it's sinful. Even non-Christians who don't believe the Bible, it's never clean. Divorce or even take marriage out of it. When there's like a, when there's sexual union, there's a, like a couples hanging out together. And then they, there's like an affair or somebody cheats on somebody. There's always this ripple effect and damage and people's lives are torn apart or ruined. And in real divorce, we see that too. We see families are torn apart. It's, it's never easy, even when it's, even when it's clearly justifiable. Like one party is completely innocent. The other party is a total schmuck doing terrible things. And the, and the one flesh union of the marriage is shattered by adultery, let's say. It's easy to say legally. You smack a, smack a approved stamp on it and say it's legal divorce. Really easy, right kids? No, where's dad? It's severe damage. So, in a way, so we're wanting to be clear that divorce is, is bad, not just because Jesus says it's bad. Jesus says it's bad because we know it's bad. We see the impact all around us in our culture, our society, our families. We're all touched by it, right? So he's, he's telling us what we already know. Don't, don't do it. And yet, like all the teaching of the law, it happens. And when it happens, what's the way out? You're not going to make yourself clean. If you think that's the way out, you're not going to find it. He makes us clean. Now, as those who have been covered in the righteousness of Jesus and those who have been cleansed and purified, now he sets marriage before us as a gift. So a husband can then be, a, be Christ to a woman who has been maybe hurt by a bad husband. Right. Why is it wrong to marry her, to reconnect her again? Because she's been one flesh with somebody else. 
There's no, there's, no, there's no ripping away the one flesh union. It's happened. Male, female, together as one flesh, marriage. And that's why I'm often, I mean, the way I approach cohabitation, like I, if I'm talking to a couple who's living together, they're living together, they're doing other things. So I say, you're married now. Let's just go get the paperwork. Let's finalize this thing. Well, no, we're going to plan a party in two years from now. No, you're married now. Well, no, we're not. Well, so you tell me you could just, so he could go and commit himself to someone else onelessly. <laughs> so look at, trying to look around the room, see how many old people are. <laughs> and that would be okay with you? Of course not. Because he's jo- you're joined together in one flesh, right? So the, the, the point of Jesus here is there's no, there's no getting clean from this mess. And it shows, in, a, in maybe a, a, probably the main way, Jesus isn't clearly overtly teaching on this, but what is marriage a picture of anyway? Christ's love for the church, which is this ongoing pursuit of an adulterer, right? Um, but he commits himself. He's not, he's not giving up. He's not going to marry another. He's chasing. Good. I know it's a, it's a hard thing, um, but we don't want to get, I, I think, we don't want to fall into the trap of saying, um, so therefore, anybody who's committed, a, anybody who has, who's married a divorced person should be, let's say, let's just push it all the way to the end. Reductio ad absurdum is the logical conclusion. But that should be excommunicated, regardless of the justifiability of the marriage, or the divorce, rather. Anyone who's married a divorced person should be excommunicated. We're determining them to be not righteous enough to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. We're doing exactly the thing that Jesus is railing against the Pharisees for doing. See? You see that? I know there are a lot of like lost faces out there. So, good. Any questions, comments on that? It's a hard teaching. I'm happy to talk more about it. I'm also happy to stop talking about it and move on. Let's talk about hell. But I, I, I don't want, I, so here's, the, this happens to me weekly. Uh, I'll, I'll say something as a negative example, but like somebody walks in halfway through or they pick up half of what I'm saying and they come to me later and say, Pastor, remember in Bible class where you said that it's sinful if, I'm like, what is, I didn't say that. So I just want to make sure we're clear on what I'm saying here. Divorce, so Pastor, remember how you said divorce is totally okay? No, it's not. I'm telling you divorce is terrible. It destroys families, and Jesus knows it. And, and they're, so, yeah, sinful, bad, really bad. Don't do it. Terrible. But, so, but if I'm approaching someone who is having gone through the messiness of a divorce and for whatever side, even, even if it's the, the active participant of, of, uh, in, the, in the adultery, so the one who's done all the bad, and they're the cause of the divorce, they shattered the one flesh union. And they're coming to me and saying, Pastor, I'm sorry. It's repentance, forgiveness. Uh, nope, can't forgive you, dude. Why? Because you committed a sin. And Jesus only forgives people. Wait a second. It doesn't work. See? So it's all about where, the, the hardness of heart in a person approaching a, adultery. But here, Jesus, notice he doesn't say, well, let's look what he does. Everyone who, who divorces his wife and remarries commits adultery. He's after convicting the Pharisees of adultery. 
showing this broken oneness that is unescapable, that then Jesus comes and completely heals, covers, right? Cleanses. All right, let's look at Luke. Um, let's look at the rich man and Lazarus. We got time. Uh, so there was a rich man. Does that sound familiar? Like the prodigal son started the exact same way. And who is Jesus talking to in the prodigal son? Remember the audience? The Pharisees who love riches. I mean, the, the scriptures are repeating this. They, they love their, they love their e- eating, in the, eating the rich houses and um, fl- um, what's the word? showing off their wealth to people. And so when Jesus talks about the rich man, says, this isn't bad that he was rich. It's just drawing in the Pharisees. And it helps contrast with Lazarus. But well, I'll, I'll unfold this more in just a second here. All right, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, signs of wealth, and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was, poured, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, who has a name. He's actually honored with a name, unlike the rich man, he isn't given a name. And he's covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The dogs were eating him. That's what's happening when the dog's licking. What do you think the dog's doing when he's taking cells off of the person into his mouth? So he, he longs to be eating crumbs and instead the dogs are eating him. We'll pause here and ask, which would you rather be? Which person would you rather be here? Obviously, this is the, the rhetorical impact of the, of the parable so far. You're listening to this thing like, this is easy. It's not even a question, Right? Uh, so which of these two people do you think is, um, has lived a more God-pleasing life based on how God is blessing them? The rich guy. As Joel Osteen said, God wants to bless you today. If you just open up your heart, pray the right prayer, here we go. Uh, so God, so if you're not experiencing greatness, your, le- your best life now, you probably did something bad that God's probably punishing you. But if you're the rich guy, you're, and this is actually the thinking of the Pharisees, by the way. So this, this equating of successful life, because think about the way the law works. The law promises rewards for good, punishments for bad. So if I'm receiving good, I'm being rewarded for being good, right? That's why when Jesus uh, heals the, 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 the man born blind and the Pharisees come up to Jesus and say, who sinned? This guy or his dad? Somebody obviously did something bad here for him to be born blind, for him to be in a bad situation. There has to be, this is a repercussion for sin. So for Lazarus, he's done a bunch of bad stuff probably. He's chosen, he's made some bad decisions, whatever, we'll blame him. Versus this rich guy. And if we're honest with our sinful flesh, we kind of do the same thing when you walk past a homeless guy by the train. And if you actually talk to some of them, you have some interesting conversations. And if they're honest, if you, if, here's what you do. Women shouldn't do this, by the way, because I mean, I just, it's not safe. Um, unless you're carrying mace or something, I don't know. But you, could, yeah, you say, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk to McDonald's and buy you a hamburger if you'll tell me the truth and why you're, this, why you're stuck in this situation on the way. And they'll say to you, probably, 
No, because if I waste 10 minutes talking to you, I'm gonna miss all these people coming off the train. But if he's sincere, maybe he'll walk with you. If he actually needs a food, he's walk with you to go get a hamburger. And, t- and I've done this a couple of times and you get these stories like, um, so I got into heroin. I, was, I had a job, I had everything was going well for me. And then I got into heroin, That's her- both times with heroin. And um, just, it led to them lying and stealing from their families and they cut off their families. So think about all of, think about you and your life. If you had lost your job and you lost everything, where would you run? Your family, anyone in this room, hopefully, right? So you have, you have a network of support. Unless you've cut off your entire network because you've lied and stolen from them repeatedly, right? So uh, that kind of happens to folks and they kind of get, they have to get finally down to the prodigal son in the pit with the pigs. And then maybe they get brought to repentance, but maybe not. Maybe they just die in that, in that terrible situation. But in any case, uh, we have Lazarus, which is a picture we maybe can, we've seen something like it before. The poor man died, boom, really quick. We kind of get to the point there. <laughs> Abruptly, the poor man died and was carried, so that's how like every good joke starts. There's a rich guy and a poor guy. The poor guy died. The rabbi walked into a, no. So the poor guy died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, which is why I mentioned, that if you look on your handout, I got the hymn there, Lord, thee I love with all my heart. That's where we get this, this uh, a, a, a synonym for heaven is Abram's bosom, Abram's side. Why is heaven called Abram's side? Because wherever, yeah, Abram's side is wherever he is and he's in heaven. <laughs> that's an easy way, oversimplification of that perhaps, but that's, that's what it is. So Abraham's side. Interesting though, Abraham would be in heaven because this poor guy is going to heaven because he's poor and the rich guy is going to hell because he's rich, but Abraham's in heaven and Abraham was very rich. Do you remember some of those stories? Like crazy amount of wealth this guy had. So we know by, by Abraham getting dropped in here, by the way, we know it's not about money. Uh, this salvation is not about, about having or not having. So anyway, um, he's carried to heaven, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Nothing flower, flowery about him with the angels, but he just died and was buried. Um, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Pause. There's a few things. We have to be careful that we don't press this parable too far because just like previous parables, Jesus is, is trying to do something to the hearers Remember the rhetorical impact of Jesus' teaching where he's not giving a discourse on what heaven is and is not. And we know that because what's about to happen is when the, rich, when the rich guy says, well, at least send Abraham to my brothers. Like all of a sudden he becomes selfless and loving, which is the opposite of hell. I mean, to be hell is to be self, self-pleasing, self-focused and to be one's own God. And it doesn't change when the person's in hell. Hell is God giving you over to what you want. You want to be your own God? Here you go, for all eternity. And so 
this, this kind of wouldn't, obviously wouldn't happen. It's not a realistic scenario, but Jesus is, is, is he's making a point, which he's setting us up for it. But there's little things maybe we can glean based on its uh, parallels in other places, like hell being hot, uh, this, the idea of suffering in hell, also this chasm, this distance between heaven and hell. Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, uh, in your lifetime, wait, you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. Now, who would you rather be? Now, in a, in a, in a simple way, when you think about this, this parable in the context, the, the eternal view versus the temporal view, it has us really thinking about the, the poverty of our temporal circumstances really doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's not pleasant, but in, the, in, the, in contrast to, to the eternality of salvation or damnation, it's like, oh, does it really matter? Um, let's not get too worked up about our stuff. In fact, our stuff might actually compromise our faith in such a way and our quest for more and more stuff that actually end up like the rich guy on earth and in hell, Right? So there's these obvious warnings, but remember what I talked about last time, the obvious point of the parable is helpful, but it's not usually what Jesus is after because parables, the, the gospel is hidden in the parables. So the obvious impact is helpful, but we, get, we're, we want to dig a little bit deeper here. Uh, but you are in anguish, verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able. You can't go from heaven or from, from heaven into hell and none may cross from there to us. It's not jumping back and forth. And he said, well then, I beg you, Father. I, in my life, I never had to like, I never took no for an answer. That's what made me a great businessman and so successful. I never take no for an answer. And so maybe I, I'm a really great bargainer and I can convince people to, to buy stuff. And so I beg you, Abraham, send, send Lazarus. If you can't send him here, send him to my father's house. Now he's, this is where we know this. So he's not thinking about others in hell, but this is Jesus teaching us something. I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Very helpful teaching here. We might often think of our unbelieving loved ones that wouldn't it be, God, just, he could just manifest some miracle and that would, that would do it. That would bring faith. That would magically make it happen, right? And no, in fact, I, I can't remember if I told you guys this or not. Back in Colorado, there was this quilters group that met in their church's basement. For, and this lady, she came up to me on like my first month of being a pastor where you do a bunch of stuff that you, you're learning what, what not to say, what, what easily offends people. Anyway, uh, she's, she's like, pastor, I read this book. Um, heaven is for real. Remember that book? Where the kid goes to heaven and he comes back. And then five years later, he admits the whole thing was fabricated, but that wasn't in the book. <laughs> Uh, but at the time, she goes, Pastor, isn't it great? The fact that he went to heaven and came back, now it's evidence that heaven exists. 
Think about how many more people will believe now. And this, this text immediately came to my mind. I was like, eh, not too sure about that. Because what brings faith? Hearing the gospel, Moses and the prophets. Now, interesting thing here, the, in contrast, just before this, I've got a question on your handout, but just because we're running low on time. Remember, he had talked about how mo the law and the prophets is the way that the Pharisees are thinking I can get into heaven by Moses and the prophets. Like that's the way in. And Jesus is saying, no, Moses and the prophets is not the way into heaven. Because how are the Pharisees thinking they're going to use that tool? Moses and the prophets is giving them the guide, how to do it, what to do. And yet here we have Moses and the prophets again, the same book. And it is the way to salvation. But it's not because it tells me what to do, but because it's actually giving me what? God's actions and mercy, God's mercy ultimately, right? So you see how the law and the prophets, the same text, is being abused by the Pharisees as this way in, and Jesus is smacking them down and saying, no, Moses and the prophets is the way in. Because that's who he's talking to here. Hence, this is why Moses and the prophets is so significant here when he's talking to the rich man. And he said, no, Father Abraham. <sighs> like a stubborn three-year-old throwing a tantrum. No, I want it my way. Salvation on my terms. I want things done in my way, just like I did during life. Things are gonna happen in my, my God wouldn't do this. Here's how my Jesus will be. This is how my God will act. I set the, I, I determine what God does and does not allow. Wait a second, I've got a better idea of how God, how God does things. No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll, they will repent. Something impressive. The gospel isn't impressive. The gospel is a stumbling block, weakness, right? I determined to know nothing among you but Christ crucified. The lowliness of the cross, the weakness of Jesus, not the glory. And in fact, whenever throughout the New Testament, whenever Jesus manifests his glory, what does he always tell people? Don't tell anybody. Isn't it interesting? Like after the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes off the mountain, don't tell anybody until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He's not after the glory, but he's after the, the weakness of the cross. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus clearly there foreshadowing what? Himself. That's right, his own, his own death and resurrection. So he's making the point salvation is not by works of the law, but it's by the mercy of God as it's revealed in Moses and the prophets. Because remember, when, 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 um, when Jesus is giving this parable about the rich man and Lazarus and, and in the context, uh, Abraham talking to the guy in hell and he says, they have Moses and the prophets. He's saying, they have the Bible. They have salvation. Let them hear them. There's no, there's no where's the crucifixion in the Old Testament? There's no John 3.16. Where in Genesis is John 3? It's not there. But yet, and then Jesus talks about this at the end of, at the end of Luke, 
um, in Luke 24, where he says, when he's, when he's on the road to Emmaus and he's talking to the, the disciples who haven't, can't figure out what's going on with the crucifixion, and Jesus opens the scriptures for them to see Jesus. He opened the scriptures that they would see him, Jesus, in Moses and the prophets to say that it all testified about him. Though the entire Bible, the entire Old Testament is, is ultimately about Jesus, which is God saving us. And if you don't see that, then you're turning, the, you're turning the Moses and the prophets into a guidebook to save yourself, like the Pharisees did, which is what Jesus is smacking them with right now. So that's really the point of this parable. He's not instructing. Lots of cool things there. When the picture I found, it's kind of fun, like the detail in there is quite magnificent. You look at the, um, the, uh, the guy eating at the all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> um, I think that's a miniature dachshund trying to jump up there on the table. But you see, notice the same face of the guy eating and then down in hell looking up, sad, and then Lazarus down with the dogs. Then he's up at Abraham's side. But see in the, that weird picture of like the five brothers at the table and you get Moses, he's standing there with the Ten Commandments and he's got there with, I don't know, I'm not sure if that's supposed to be Jesus or Lazarus standing there with Elijah and, and Moses. But that's the whole point. His faith comes by the preaching of God's word. What a helpful thing for us um, in our, maybe in our frustration with how, with how God's way works um, for, 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 for us to be more patient and um, with, our, with our loved ones who are the, the, the rich brothers of the world or the five, the five brothers to the rich man who aren't believing, um, we, we're not looking for a miracle in the sense that they need to see a miracle in order to believe. If they see a miracle, who knows? Maybe they'll just want more miracles. But it comes, faith comes by hearing and this weakness of the gospel that brings repentance and faith. And so we can be confident in God's word to do what, what, he, what he wants it to do, when and where he pleases, right? And that's hard because we really want there to be like a miraculous event, even in the preaching of the gospel, like, Someone, you, you tell the gospel to your neighbor and they say, hallelujah. And they're jumping up and down and life-changing and all this. It doesn't, doesn't usually work that way, right? And yet, I'll bet you many of you have friends who have converted and they have really interesting stories. As you hear, you know, they'll tell you how the Lord somehow opened their eyes to believe at some point, right? Uh, it's on his time not on yours and not in your way. If you want things done your way, then you you're find yourself echoing the guy who's in hell, which is not a good guy to be repeating, right? No, 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 God, my brothers will believe if you do this. God's like, oh, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I never thought about that. No. So that gives us a, a peace that uh, faith comes by hearing in the weakness of the gospel. So I think we're, we're kind of touching up on our time here. Um, let's, let's take some questions. Any thoughts on rich man and Lazarus? I love this text. It's really, at the face value of the parable has us mindful of the allure of riches. I mean, just before this, how Jesus had, had talked about how a person can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve two masters. And there is always this draw that my, if, I, if I can just get more of it, then I'll be happy 
And we, what, we wanting to, what we're often wanting to do is get as much money as possible, but also hold our faith as tightly as we can, because I can have it, I can hold both tightly. And yet, how many examples do we have of those who have finally got such a strong grip on, on wealth in this world that they just completely let go, right? So that's always our sinful nature. So he's warning, he's giving us a good warning, how we prioritize our life, how we raise our children. Um, I didn't mention this, I didn't mention the sermon this morning, I almost did, but like so many people I've talked to in our house, like I was, I was raised Catholic or Lutheran or whatever, and my parents forced it down my throat and I never wanted, I, I'm not gonna do that to my kids. I'm gonna let my kids decide. Interesting. Like, do you also let them decide like how to invest your 401k or which house you're gonna buy or whether or not they can brush their teeth or go to the doctor or all this? Who decides those important things? So how about like, you can let them decide the unimportant things like how to invest your 401k <laughs> and you decide what faith is actually true, right? Because it actually matters. And yet, usually it's the other way around. Right? We raise up our kids to be financially thriving, even if the cost is often, and very often it's put to us this way, and a clear decisions to be made that, oh, you know what, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't be in, involved in this church thing and be good at swimming. Uh, we'll just, we'll, give, we'll do extra devotions at home. Surely the kids won't pick up on our, teaching them that swimming is more important because he's going to get into the Olympics, right? That happened like one guy. My, Michael Phelps is like the only person who's <laughs> like, and yet you think these, these decisions that you're making when your kids are in elementary school aren't going to have these long-term effects. So it's, it's good <clears throat> for us to hear the law on this, to, for the Lord to smack us from our idols. Hey, uh, there is a hell. Um, if you keep chasing yourself, you're going to go there. Um, let, listen to Moses and the prophets, who, by the way, give us Jesus, who forgives only one kind of person? Sinners, Sinners right? So we have a wonderful teaching of Jesus here. So then uh, you'll notice the hymn, before we wrap up, I wanna push Lord thee I love with all my heart, hymn 708. Uh, very, very often uh, people meet with me to plan their funerals or Pastor Schumacher, Pastor Barton's like, um, and they, so they'll be like the kids. It'll be like your kids or grandkids who aren't here and they don't really know good hymnody because they never come to church or, or whatever. And when, they, when I sit down to plan their hymns, they're like, well, I know grandma liked Amazing Grace. And they think that you like Amazing Grace because they saw Amazing Grace in a movie one time and they just assume that's a song that all Christians sing. You know how many times we've sung Amazing Grace at Bethany in a Sunday service? Zero. But not that it's bad. It's not bad. I'm gonna make that point clear. I'm just saying there's a reason why there's better, right? Why drive a Ford Pinto when there's like a Lexus on the table, right? Or whatever. Toyota Tundra. That's my, that's my false god. Um, so like, so this great hymnody, this is the, I would argue, the best Hymn and the hymnal for funerals. Lord, thee I love with all my heart. This is stanza three. Lord, let at last thine angels come to Abram's bosom, bear me home, that I may die unfearing. And in its narrow chamber, keep my body safe in peaceful sleep until thy reappearing. 
And then from death awaken me, that these mine eyes with joy may see. O Son of God, thy glorious face, my Savior, my fount of grace, Lord Jesus Christ, my prayer attend, my prayer attend, and I will praise thee without end. Remarkable confession of the resurrection. And this, that's like stanza three. The first two hymns are, are awesome as well. Um, but I wanted to use this text as a, as a way to push that hymn. We're in the coming months, Pastor Schumacher is going to have a, a workshop on funeral planning. I know no one wants to talk about such things, but it is helpful, um, especially for your loved ones. If, if many of you have had to bury, bury parents and, and stuff. Uh, when, you're, when you're trying to, you're having to make a lot of really unpleasant decisions all at once, and you're already an emotional wreck. Um, one gift that you can actually give your kids is, is thinking through, or whoever's doing your funeral, thinking through your actual service and having it done and written down. And you do me and pastor a service too, because when they say, nope, grandma loved Garth Brooks and she wants Garth Brooks sung during church. And I say, first of all, no, uh, not a lot of Garth Brooks in the LSB, um, but here's what grandma wanted. She wrote it down. See, she signed it here, right? And if, if you write a hymn down that we don't like, we'll change it after you die. No. <laughs> but the idea, would be, the idea would be to think through these things um, in a thoughtful way of what, how we're going to confess the faith, because you'll be fine, actually, right? You'll be with the, with the Lord praising him. Um, but for, to give a clear confession of the gospel to those who are still here in the Valley of Sorrow, right? So to think these things through, so we'll have a seminar coming up. We'll, I'll, I'll give you more information about that in the coming months. Sorry, I went a little bit long. Ash Wednesday, 11.15. Also 6 o'clock soup supper, 7 o'clock service. We'll continue next week with Luke 17. We go forth in our Lord's name. Thanks be to God.